everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we welcome Ian Sater-Dallin, lead producer at Mythical Games. Ian has also worked at Zynga, BioWare, and 343 Industries. We get to understand what makes Ian tick as a producer, how he works with his teams, his experience with crunch, and how production, like the rest of the industry, is an ever-evolving beast that's always tough to tame, but when you do, there's nothing quite like it. I always enjoy talking to people with a production background, since that's also a big part of my background as well. And it was really interesting getting to know how Ian puts an emphasis on his team. I think there's a lot of producers out there and people in upper management roles, even outside of the game industry, could be any industry, where they have a very specific way of doing things and people working under them have to do it exactly how it's dictated. And the the person in the management role or the production role doesn't take into account the strengths and weaknesses of their team. And quite frankly, Ian doesn't do that. Ian has a very personal touch. He gets to know the people he's going to work with immediately, not just how they work, but also uh, you know who they are as people, and that helps the work get done in the long run at a much more efficient level. Ian's a very personal guy. This is a very personal episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it, whether or not you know anything about the production discipline or not. So uh, enough with the intro. Let's get straight into the episode. Here's Ian. Okay, so Ian, when you're coming onto a project that's just getting started, what's the most important thing that needs to happen for you as a producer to sort of get the ball rolling? Meeting the team. I mean, they're the lifeblood, the how and why and what the project is, how it how it works and how it operates. Um, and so if there's a reason why I came on or others came on to, to help the team help those people do their best work, um, it's to actually get to know them. Like, what makes them tick? What are their interests? What problems are they having? Are they having personal issues? Um, and a lot of that is um, collaborating with a lot of different types of personalities because of that. So um, that is first and foremost the... Um, I get asked that in interviews as well, too, um, especially being more of a senior producer. Um because they look for things like that, especially being a manager uh, in that respect. How do you work with different types of personalities? Have you worked with um, difficult personalities even? Um, and so, um, yeah, whenever I come on a project like, hey, this tool is broken or <laughs> how do we deal with these bugs? Those are kind of like, yes, we, we will get to those and deal with those as we go through here. But um, I can't solve the larger problems, the long-term problems that are gonna um, are gonna keep us in a reactive state um, if if I don't know the people. And does that start with getting to know the various department heads, or is that just you getting to know the people you're gonna directly work with? Um, I, I usually start um, with the people that I'm working directly with because that's just natural, right? Like I'm already gonna be in meetings with them. I already am in meetings with them because we're working on stuff together, <laughs> whether it's in the game or problems we're trying to solve um, in the pipeline, et cetera. Um, and so usually it just naturally starts there. And then it's like, oh, I need to talk to these people because all the cross department 
teams to make a game operate, right? Um, uh, and then it just kind of expands from there, like, okay, <laughs> now I'll reach out to these people and this team, and oh, this person is the studio or, or the department head of that, okay. Whether it's like tech art or engineering or whatever and stuff, and uh, then I'll go talk to them and start to know them. And it's not there to have any like um, um, agenda type of thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it at first there is to, hey, I want to get to know you. And maybe we do have an immediate problem to solve, but <laughs> I'm new, you're new. Like, I don't, uh, like, because sometimes it's like, hey, you don't know me. Here's, we got to solve this problem here and stuff. Kind of gives off sometimes a wrong vibe, but sometimes yeah. that's also some personalities as well, too. Some people just want to solve problems. That's all they want to do uh, and stuff. And it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> sometimes you really have to get them out of a work setting for them to kind of open up and talk personality-wise. And I'm not talking about, like, spill your personality, deepest, darkest secrets type of thing. It's just, hey, let me get to know you outside of a work setting. So. Right. So how do you, how do you go about breaking the ice there specifically? Kind of depends on the studio. Like, um, at riot, they have what they call bilge water. Um, and that's kind of like their coffee shop on campus, whatever and stuff that is like the go-to spot. If you want to meet someone or break the ice or whatever and stuff, you go to bilge water, have anything made that you want. Um, essentially, and then you can walk around campus, et cetera, et cetera, and, and break the ice that way. Um, it kind of depends on the studio, though, but I think for me, um, especially working remotely, has been difficult in that respect because it's like, okay, well, you have to hop on another Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. Great. No one wants to do that, especially if they're in Zoom calls for eight hours a day. Right. And there's inherently some disconnect when you're getting to know somebody, I think, Correct. remotely through Zoom calls, right? The disconnect's already there where you're not in the same room as the as the other person. Correct, yeah, it already sets that tone uh, as well too. So um, I think what I've seen, uh, I haven't done it in my current team, but in some of my previous teams though, like they'll do offsites and stuff and that's where either a team or a discipline um, will just fly to a location or to headquarters or whatever, if that studio has a headquarters. And that's what they will do. They will get their solved problems that are harder to do on Zoom calls um, and then meet new people as well, too. Like, break the ice. Like, I've seen you on camera. Wow, you look a lot taller in person. Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or a right. lot shorter based upon how your camera is set up. Um, uh, and that's, that's just a good icebreaker, especially in this remote world that we are in right now. So it sounds like you try to tailor your management style to your team. I'm sure you have like a style that you like to go with. But I always think there's a give and take there where you have to have your, your, your identity as a producer, but you also have to know your personnel to be able to adapt to them. Yeah, my personality is very straightforward. Um, and I've learned how to, um, uh, what do I want to say? I wouldn't say sugarcoat's the right word because that's not the right um, aspect because that gives a negative connotation. But like the soft skills and um, being able to deliver feedback, even if it's hard, um, very um, positive and constructive to help that person grow because that's what I'm there to do, especially as a manager. Um, but for me, I think a lot of that for me is like, I, I don't beat around the bush. I want to 
I want that person to know if they're doing great, great, keep going. And if you need help, here are some tools or tips or whatever to help you go even further and succeed. Right. And on the other Mm -hmm. side of that, it's like, okay, you're struggling. Here's why you are struggling. Here are the things that I am observing. Here is the feedback that I've gotten from peers that you work with um, or whatever. Um, And here are the things that we can do to address those things, help you improve and get you to where you want to be and to where I also need you to be as an employee as well, too. So, like, are are you a creative producer? Do you come to the table with a lot of ideas with the the teams that you're working with? Are you just more about managing and making sure things are getting done? Uh, depends on the role. And what I mean by that is, um, at some companies, um, that I've been at, um, the role of producer, um, you have large studios like Riot, EA, Activision and stuff. They separate out producers from maybe something that you've heard in the past called development managers or development directors. Um, Development directors do more of the tactical day-to-day and help the team execute and deliver on that thing. Um, and then producers, or even at Riot, I think it, when I was there, it was at least product managers. Um, they would be the strategy, the vision, helping set the vision for what that thing could, should, and would be. Even in my role right now and stuff, they combine the two right now. So I actually help the team execute on a day-to-day. And then I'm also the product owner for the features that I drive as well too with the team. And so I do have some input, but I lean a lot on the people on my team because they are subject matter experts in their area. Um, Be like, how how should we solve this and stuff? And so I'm kind of like the working with leadership on the what and the why and then i work with the team on okay how to solve that type of thing um and yeah sometimes like, like a sounding board kind of thing correct and so sometimes i yeah. have creative vision um and it ultimately lies within my responsibility on how that product gets delivered um whether it's successful or whether it's a failure it doesn't matter it's on me um i will take that blame for the team because i'm I'm the one driving it with the team and I'm, I'm helping give them guidance direction. Um, and they're just trying to do their best work. Right. And so helping enable them to do the best at what they can do. It's not on them if they (laughs) didn't do what was successful or not. Um, I think a lot of it is just, Hey, why does this make sense in this context? Is this actually solving the problem? And we put our best foot forward. And sometimes it fails like there's a lot of example of this in the game industry and then you see like um hey they worked at it they worked at it they worked at it and wow it's it's a a masterpiece or this is what we wanted it to be type of thing from the players and stuff and um then it gets all this traction and successful and all these type of things so um uh so you see that a lot in the industry and that's just how it is uh, in the creative process so yeah, I think there's like a negative connotation towards producers as as uh, sort of the big bads, right? Um, being down, being up everyone's ass, down everyone's throat, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, but I think the sign of a really great producer, whether they're a hard ass or they're not, right, is putting their team in, in the best position to succeed to make the best game they can make or movie or whatever, whatever the producer, you know, whatever you're working on, whatever product you're working on. I think that's the sign 
of a truly great producer. Yeah, I've um, I've been part of some teams where they just they don't understand producers. They they think we're there to put a thorn in their side, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, no, I'm trying to even if I'm not a product owner aspect and I'm just helping the team execute. Like, um, I'm trying to like there is a reason why I get paid to do what I do. Like, um, priority execution estimation. Um, when is that thing going to get delivered? Is that more important than this thing? I think it's so funny how some people are like, you just sit and play games every day, right? I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. It is not. <laughs> Get making games is very hard. Um, and uh, man, I was so, um, I was just very passionate when I was a kid. Um, I think, man, I played Super Smash Bros. on uh and N64 uh, and stuff. And I saw the credits roll on uh, the first Halo uh, and stuff. And I was like, wow, people get paid to make these things? This is awesome. I want to do this when I grow up and stuff. And, oh, I did not know what I was in for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but here we are like 10 years later and I'm still doing it. So, uh, and I love what I do every day. Um, I love helping people. I, it's weird. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, uh, and so like by the time the end of the day rolls around, I'm, my social battery is dead. Like I'm gone. Um, yeah, but, um, but I love what I do still. Like I love helping people. I love, um, us being able to learn and we learn a lot every day. Um, uh, bad things, good things, new things in the engine, Uh, things that we're trying to solve and then um, uh, uh, even successes too like man we are really proud of that like good job team Mm -hmm. you you killed it uh, type of thing and so um, but yeah just being an introvert and and being able to help people it's a weird combination so uh, I always tell people I'm an introvert by nature but I'm extroverted by the work that I do because I have to talk to everyone. Um, it's not really a choice for me. Um, and if that's how I can do my best work, then that's what I need to do. I'm kind of a, a, a similar beast in that sense of uh, introvert by nature, but but extrovert um, when I do produce things. And mm-hmm. the, the dopamine hit you get from that, when things are going right, or a plan you made works, mm-hmm. um, the team is coming together, and you feel like you, you, you played a, a role in it, um, whatever your role is. It's huge. Uh, there's not really a better feeling than that. I don't think. Yeah. I think that's still probably some of my most, um, honorable or remember, moments, um, in the game industry, um, is even having just a hand in it and stuff. And some of the things I launched as a production assistant when I was at Blizzard was some of the cinematics. Um, um, even now some of the stuff we just launched for our game, uh, as well too, for, um, uh, on the Epic game store. And it's like, man, like whether it was wildly successful or not, like we loved what we did as a team and we may not have enjoyed every moment of it, but, um, but we were really proud of what we created. Um, and that is a feeling that stands out like no other. Um, so, uh, and that's why I continue to do what I do. Um, so yeah, let's get a little bit more into the weeds in terms of, uh, producing things as if we haven't been talking about that the whole time, but in terms of like communication across departments, what are some of the methods you employ to really make that effective? Um, 
kind of thinking here. Um, I think a lot of that comes down to the personality type. Like you have, um, as an example here, you have, um, uh, if I go and talk to engineers most of the time, they're, they're very, um, what do I want to say, most of the time calculated, um, technical, um, <laughs> and stuff. And so I got to kind of change my mindset when I um, approach them. Um, and how I would approach them may not be different. It's like, hey, we got to solve a problem here and stuff, but I need to kind of more think about what are they thinking from a technical aspect to start um, bringing up some of those assumptions of questions that I that they may start coming up with and start kind of formulating those in my head um, so I can really wrap my mind around this. If it's something new, like um, one of the previous projects I was on, um, I had never worked on AI before with AI, uh, and bots and stuff. And they're just like, Hey, there's no one else. My manager's like, I don't have time. Can you lead this? And so I'm like, sure. I'm your guy. <laughs> and so like something like that and stuff, it's like, okay, I'm please explain stuff to me. Like I'm five years old because I need to be able to start understanding this and asking the questions so that we can start moving in the right direction. Cause right now we're not in the right direction. So, um, so that's kind of two different scenarios. It's like, do I know the thing? Have I worked with something like that before? Okay. Here's how I would kind of go and approach that situation with whatever the discipline is. But again, like kind of going back to my personality, like I'm very, I'm very forward. I'm going to go to that person that I know. And if I don't know who that person is, I'm going to start somewhere, whether that's with my manager, whether that's with someone I know. And be like, hey, do you know who is in charge of this or who I can go to to talk to to solve this problem type of thing? So um, because sometimes teams are huge, like like I've worked on teams as large as 1300 and I've worked on teams as small as six. So it kind of just depends the nature of the beast as well, too. They all have different types of problems. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think if you don't know something, right. And you go to someone and you haven't talked to them before, but you're like, you know, we're having this issue. Yeah. Uh, please explain to me, you know, why this isn't working. Let's try to figure out a solution is a much better uh, thing to do as opposed to coming and being like, this is a problem. You need to fix it. I'm yeah. This is our timeline. Like go screw yourself, you know, sort of thing. Like that's, that's the see, worst I've seen that see, before. And I'm like, why would you do that? So, yeah. And so you know. we were, if we go back to what we were talking about before, right. Uh, the, how people get negative connotation of producers and stuff. That, that is that's one it. of the reasons. It's exhibit a. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is a good prime example right there. Um, yeah. but, but especially for me, it's like, they also are there to solve problems too, I would hope, uh, and stuff. And so it's usually, especially working remotely here, it's like, oh, hey, I've never met you before. I may have seen you in Slack channels or email threads or whatever, but hi, my name is Ian uh, and stuff. And then we'll go into actually solving the problem after we introduce ourselves really quickly. Um, uh, and sometimes I've even done it to a point to where uh, it's like... Um, oh, I didn't know that you went to the same college or I didn't know that you worked here at this time because sometimes it'll just show up in LinkedIn feed or whatever from like all the targeted stuff and whatever. 
<laughs> and yeah. it's like, okay, yeah, let's let's solve that problem uh, and stuff. Um, and I think me, especially working a lot with designers in the past, um, and even while well, I originally went to school for 3D art as well too, so I love geeking out on that stuff. Um, and I work a lot with like social and uh, player progression systems. Mm -hmm. Um, and so talking about that stuff, I just love to nerd out. And so sometimes I'm, if they're like, oh yeah, have you done this? Oh wait, we're here to solve a problem type of thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. so like you just like jive better with some than others and stuff. And even others, it's like, I have no clue what you do, but I know that you're important and stuff. I want to learn more and stuff. And maybe now's not the time because we're trying to solve a problem, but that's usually how if, if they're, a personality where they're hard to open up or they're shy or they're more introverted and they're just maybe really good at what they do and they're comfortable with their team and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, then I'll find ways to, like we were talking about before methods, tools to kind of break the ice for that. So, yeah. Um, but that's very rare, especially like in a leadership role, you'll find someone that's very shy, doesn't want to talk unless it's a very, very small kind of stealth or startup team. Mm-hmm. at that point you can think of any sort of specific scenarios where um you have to go to a different department and you have to tell them uh, i don't know we're behind and this is going to affect deliverable date or whatever and uh they're not they're not being uh, you know they're not reciprocating that um and there's a conflict there in terms of uh, in terms of scheduling and things like that or impacting the bottom line of the game i don't openly go into meetings with everyone and just say right. hey we're behind schedule on here right right i just mean like you know you're <laughs> talking to a someone motivation killer <laughs> right that's like okay well that's great no but i mean like you know you go to someone else like in private kind of thing and then uh, yeah, there's yeah. a disagreement or something or or, or or anything like that and you have to figure out how to smooth that over um every day um uh, at least for me right now um i would say um there is always something that Maybe not necessarily behind and stuff, but there's this problem here. Here are we, how are we solving it as well too? And I know we dealt with this even before as well too. So um, here's a good example as well too. Um, uh, so um, I don't think I should name the name, but uh, anyway. So uh, usually when a big AAA title releases, this has happened on all the AAA games that I've released that are very. Um, uh, what do I want to say? In the public eye, essentially. Anthem, Halo, um, uh, uh, Diablo, World of Warcraft, all, all those type of things and stuff. Like Usually what you'll see is you'll have studios start reaching out about when that's releasing because they're like, oh, you're about to have this new AAA title under your belt and stuff. We're interested in you because you've solved these problems type of thing or whatever the reason may be and stuff. And so you'll see people start leaving getting offers uh and stuff because um either they've been at the company a long time and they want to try something new or they've worked on this project a long time and they want to try something new or or they got a just got a better offer more money or work remoting or working in italy or whatever the case may be and stuff and so usually that's when you'll see a large exodus on a on a project we were constantly having discussions about like okay who's taking on their work who's the backfill how are we hiring for this how does this transform in our life service now Um, because that's 
primarily what I've been on for games has been um, free-to-play live services. And so it's like, um, okay, well, <laughs> that ship does not stop. Like, how do we keep this ship moving until, one, we get someone else in there? Or is what this other person's doing on the project is this more important than what they're doing right now? And we have to kind of limp along or multiple people pitch in to take on that work, which always is not great either and stuff because, okay, you get more work, but you're not getting a pay raise or you're not getting a promotion type of thing and stuff. And that's kind of just... I don't want to say that's the nature of the beast because that's not how it should be uh, and stuff. It's kind of, unfortunately, the norm uh, and stuff. But um, people are good at either, one, setting their boundaries or and some studios are getting better about, like, no, that we have to hire that. That's a high priority and we need to hire them fast. Otherwise, all these things sacrifice on the project or causes X delay or whatever. Like, all the risk and mitigation that we do as well, too. Um, and stuff. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of some examples, but I think if you want, um, or that's a very like drastic example, but it's very real, especially in a lot of the titles I've been on. I think like even on a day to day going to talk to other, um, it's like, Hey, we need, I don't know. We need a string that's player facing that makes sense to our players with, um, um, within the context of the world of our game. Okay. Like, is this something we missed? Did we miss that in the design? Did we miss it in the layout or whatever? Okay, we got to solve that. Okay, we got to make sure they have time for it and they can do it and fits in the schedule. Okay, how does that affect our timeline? I, I'm not as scared about like content delivery stuff because especially in live services, you can deliver that stuff on the back end without depending on like a, a new build and stuff for QA to test and then go through especially if you're on console or um, mobile and stuff, then you don't have to go through certification and stuff like that. But all that stuff takes time. So if you can, it's usually the large engineering changes or whatever that I would say scare me the most uh, and stuff. And some of that can also be done on the back end. But if it's like, hey, like we need this thing to accommodate, I think the largest thing is like um, uh, our store drops or... Um, some live events that we want to have going on or, or whatever. And it's like, oh, crap, we didn't really account for that with this new UX design or whatever. And it's like, oh, crap, how's this going to work? How can we get the dynamic data for our players in certain situation? And then all that blows up to localization and different regions in the world that have different restrictions on stores and monetization and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, there's lots to consider um, just when you're trying to deliver a good product for English users in the U.S. region. And then it's not like it just like doubles or multiplies. Like it like quadruples. It exponentially increases the complexity when you do another language, <laughs> yeah. another region, uh, and so on and so forth, another country. Uh, and so that's why making games is very hard. So <laughs> what about beyond like uh, compliance stuff like communication with QA I always find fascinating in terms of yeah. when Q, especially for a live service. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like getting information from QA, disseminating that and figuring out what to do. Right. What's that process been like for you in the in the past or even in the present? It's weird. So I started in QA. Um, okay. So I have a large respect for the QA discipline. 
Um, uh, and so the things that I was fighting for when I was in QA leadership um, is what I try and fight for QA now, being in more of a leadership producer position. Because those are the things that I would want as a QA lead as well, too. Um, and some of those things are, um, I want to make sure that they have the tools uh, to support them to be able to test things fastly, efficiently, whatever. Um, and, and a lot of that communication starts getting them involved in the design process. Um, and I know that's kind of, um, I know we're moving more towards a healthier relationship with QA in that respect in the industry. Um, but there's still <laughs> leagues to go, I would say. Um, and so when I'm, uh, and what I mean by that is it was unheard of to have QA involved early in a design process, um, whether it's waste of time, waste of money, whatever and stuff. But for me, it's like if they have context of all of those decisions up front, and maybe they can't do that because maybe they're trying to still tackle the last release and stuff. Okay, well, give them as much context as they can up front because otherwise you're going to spend more time answering those same questions or even the thing I find most valuable from QA being there up front is, did you think about this use case or this edge case? How does that affect your design? And we're like, crap, no one thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Glad you're here and stuff up front to where when you solve those, and I've had this happen even in my current situation, in my current role, is if you get them involved later, and stuff, and then they find it, it's a lot more expensive to fix that in the production process. So it's like, okay, maybe, I mean, and that's not to say they're going to catch everything, right? Because you won't always do that. Um, but the more heads that you can have there, hopefully you have more eyes on it and fresh eyes to then capture those things during the process before you even get to that point where it's like, Hey, we built the thing. <laughs> okay. QA it, uh, and stuff and actually test it to make sure it doesn't break. Oh crap. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to do all this overhaul and panic and reactive and ah! <laughs> right. Um, well, I think that's, that's a cool idea, to right. To have QA involved earlier in the process. Like the one concern I could see from doing that is that they also get too close to the design um, of the game or, or the way things work. And then they can't disseminate, you know, from just like, is, and is it fun factor? They might not be able to give you ideas later down the line as much as they could if they weren't as involved in the beginning. But I, don't know, I feel like it could be a bit of a catch 22 potentially. So actually to your former point, there are ways around that uh, in the production uh, pipeline. One of them is to one, um, play test with the entire studio. Like not everyone is close to it, right? You're mm -hmm. <laughs> there. That's kind of, uh, well, QA is the first line of defense, right? But if, yeah, you're right. If they're in there with you in those conversations, maybe they are too close to the product, right? But what I often find out is one, play test with the studio. Not everyone's close to it and stuff. They're going to have feedback, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Would you rather have them give you feedback or do you want your players to rip you a new asshole? <laughs> right. right. That's kind of the mentality I always have uh, and stuff. So um, when people are scared, like, no, I don't want to show my work. I don't want to show, I'm not ready and stuff. Like, do you, <laughs> do you want to spend more time and do it wrong? Or do you want to get as quick feedback as possible whether it's from me or your 
uh, your manager or a peer or whatever and stuff like whoever you feel comfortable with but do you want do you want the executives to tear you a new one or would you rather have someone that you trust and comfort to give you feedback um and so um i think here the other aspect is um not just play testing in the studio that kind of absolves some of that because they may be close to the product with that QA person or whatever being in on the designs close to the product as well too. But it's like, oh, okay, well then they can see some of those things. And they always think, well, a lot of the QA that I've worked with in the past has been very analytical and thinking from a player aspect anyway. Um, so yeah, they may miss some things and that gives them perspective. The other thing as well too is, um, it's probably only been maybe one or two teams where I am the only QA if I'm the lead on that team. Um, I think the largest team I had when I was QA lead was about like 30, 35. Um, mm. uh, and so it's not just me, like I'm helping being in leadership meetings, help trying to disseminate some of that information. The product is way too big for me to be clo- close to it. It's actually the other people on my team that are close to the product. Um, and so actually what will happen is I'll give them feedback because I'll see this because I'm in leadership meetings and I'm not close to the product, whereas they'll be close to the product and they won't see some of these aspects. Or because there's a lot of interdependency on especially live services as well too and how the, all the systems and stuff work together, it's like, okay, you two QA and stuff, you had very specific focuses right? As QA on this product, but they, you have crossover. Did you think about these different aspects or scenarios or edge cases or whatever as well too? Okay. We've resolved even a lot more of our issues now because now we get, and that's not to say that that's very stagnant or whatever. Usually that's very organic as well too, being like, Hey, I know you work on this and stuff and I have, let's work together because this will make this part of the product even a lot more better and stuff oh they they're tied into this too okay let's get them involved as well too because they need to be uh, and it's not like i'm not saying like clicks or groups or stuff like in high school and stuff but it, mm-hmm. it's like there's very very especially large product spaces like i'm talking like triple a here um it's just it's so big that um people have very specific focuses that just inherently cross over and you can't always um, think of it this way, get three people in a meeting to try and agree on something in a minute <laughs> on any type of problem. Good luck with that. Right. Get it'll, 30 it'll turn people. Into, yeah. <laughs> it'll turn into hours and get right. 30 people do. This. So a lot of it is trying to be mindful of people's time as well too, because, and that's kind of the also catch 22 with communicating with people across teams, departments, whatever, and stuff across the project as well, too. It's like, I need to get the immediate people who are involved and stuff. The bigger I make that meeting, one, the more expensive it is, and two, the more time it's going to take as well, too, because maybe people aren't aligned. Maybe, I, I mean, some of it's good and some of it's bad. One, you can get more perspective, right? You can get more ideas on how to solve problems as well, too. But also, if it's like, hey, they're... I don't know, maybe he, maybe CEO over here is making a decision and stuff. And it's like, okay, well, he made the decision already. I need you, you and you on to understand why we're going this direction to give you context so that we can start driving towards that type of thing. 
happen sometimes, right? Um, and so that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, uh, and But the big thing there, I think, is like transparency. And um, especially when we're talking in the realms of QA there, um, on getting them involved early, get le at least leads, get people who are going to be working on that thing involved early so they can have context and they can help you plan them better as a producer as well too and be like um as an example like i've had i see this a lot especially in like um maybe engineering or more tech focused roles tech art um, um whatever and stuff where it's like hey i've done this before i've made this tool to help make this tech pipeline or make this animation before and here's the support i need from engineering um, and whatever. And it's like, okay, let me talk to an engineer on this, um, because they're free or, or whatever and stuff. And they're like, I've never done that before. It would take me, <laughs> it would take me five days to do that. It's like, wait, this other one said it's taken them two hours uh, and stuff. And they're like, oh, well they, that's all they do, <laughs> but they're on vacation or they're sick or whatever and stuff. And it's like, and so it's like, oh, okay, well that can help inform the kind of level of delta there based upon seniority or even who's worked on that before and who hasn't uh, and stuff. So, um, and that happens on large projects too. Those are just some of the problems you have to solve almost on a daily basis. In terms of keeping things on track, what, what do you use? What tools do you use to, to, to schedule? Some of that depends on the studio, like Microsoft studios tend to use, um, uh, like the Microsoft suite stuff, like Azure mm -hmm. DevOps, um, Excel, Word, um, whereas other studios, sometimes they adopt like uh, Microsoft Suite stuff. Sometimes they adopt Google. Um, right. But man, I, I don't do know. You there's, there's, so there's a catch-22 to both, right? And I'll tell you why. One is I really love being able to make um, roadmaps and... Um, uh, kind of delivery pipelines um, where the team is working. So whether that's in Jira, whether that's in um, Azure DevOps, like, and and these tools have gotten so well in the I would say in the last five ten years um, that you can make these to a pretty good extent with some intimacy knowledge of that pipeline. Um, you can get a pretty good understanding of where you're going to land in terms of a deadline. Um, within the tools. Whereas before, Jira didn't have road mapping before. Um, within the tool, everyone was using Excel, right? <laughs> right. Um, but like, I can do something quick and dirty in five to 10 minutes in Excel. And so, so if, if they're like, hey, I need this for this meeting in 15 minutes uh, and stuff, and it's like, okay, what am I gonna go to? I'm gonna go to Excel. <laughs> Um, and sometimes I've even seen where there's entire production processes in Excel. The good thing about Excel still to this day, or even Google Sheets, I love Google Sheets even more, um, is that um, a lot of it is manual. So if there's a delay or your production shifts or whatever and stuff, guess what? Everything in every cell, you have to push out manually. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's, that's what I always hated about that about I know it's a sheets lot of or Excel. I hate yeah. it. But um I can control what I'm showing. So if I need to show this to an executive, I know what information they care about, 
right? And so sure. I can I can make that roadmap specific to what I know executive leadership needs to see. Um, if I'm showing it to the team, again, I can have that view ready to go of what I know the team needs to see in terms of, hey, here's our goals, here's where we're hitting, here's all the estimates you've given me, and here's where we're netting out here, just to give some team some clarity on. Now, some team members don't care. Some are like, oh, this is good perspective. I'm glad that you showed us this. And because um, sometimes the team's like, I really want to know what's going on. Like, I'm not just here to <laughs> be a cog in the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. And stuff. Most of the time, the team wants clarity and transparency as well, too. So, um, and so I've actually gotten a lot of um, feedback, good feedback from past teams I've been on being like, you really care about your team. You really are transparent with deadlines and why we're moving towards directions or specific goals the project has, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and stuff. So yeah, that's why I love Excel because I can control what I'm showing, what I'm displaying and what I put in there. And it's very easy tool to kind of customize in that respect. Yeah. That's one thing. It's a lot of manual work. Yeah. And, uh, that's one thing I'll give I'll give Excel or, or Sheets is is yeah that the, the control is great. I mean, sometimes we're using something like uh, Jira or Favro. Yeah. I, I hate Trello with a passion. I never <laughs> I haven't used that in years. <laughs> but Favreau, with both yeah. of the yeah yeah I like Favro. Uh, but with both of those Favreau. right <laughs> yeah <laughs> with both of those it's like uh, it can be sort of tough to get what you need out of it fast right. Like if you got to yeah. present something to someone fast, you got to go through all these different boards, all these different sprints, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, with an Excel or sheet, um, that process can definitely be easier there for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, where the team is running. Yeah, definitely. Like it's all automatic. Uh, you can link to, I mean, you can do this in Excel too. It's just, it, like I said, it's all manual work. Um, and so, yeah, Trello, they have a good roadmap, or not Trello, uh, Favro. I, I haven't even used Trello in so long. I don't even know if they do, actually. Oh, yeah, I, I despise um, it, yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah, Favro, Jira, and uh, Excel are my primaries. Um, those are the ones that I go to. So, right. long-winded way of answering your question, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the thing I always struggled with uh, Sheets and Excel was, was, like, I'd have to go into a separate app and then basically take that information from there and then be like, all right, now I can put this into my, my Jira or my Excel. But then I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so time consuming either way being doing any sort of schedule management or or task management or whatever is it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. You know, and that's some of the exercises you just have to go through as a producer. Um, Otherwise you're not actually going to find the risks and um, the kind of like, oh shit moments and stuff right where, where like it's velocity like, is really down yeah uh we're yeah. really in trouble here <laughs> right uh-oh because <laughs> who's who's gonna find those out like that that's one of the reasons why you're there as a producer so. right <clears throat> so if something like that happens like if your velocity is down are you guys on do you, do you like doing like two week sprints or how, how does that normally set up for you <laughs> <laughs> or I guess um, it's different with a live service. I mean, I, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, we talked to uh, another producer at uh, WB Games, and he was talking. Yeah. And he also does live services, and he was it's, like, you know, sprints just vary. Sprints just vary in terms of their length for him. Um, yeah, I'm on the mentality as it's not necessarily because it's a live service or not a live service. It's more about what 
what works well for the team. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of that filters down to what works well for the project as well too. Um, so as projects, I'll give some examples here. Um, I told you I've been on very, very large teams before, which have very, um, they have specific needs that smaller teams, smaller projects don't have to worry about, right? Which is how do, how does leadership at a high level know where everything is at at any given point in the project without having to go to this one person and ask all the time and stuff. Um, and so some of the ways how we've solved that on larger projects is um, unified reporting methods, right? So it's like whether you're content, whether you're engineering, doesn't matter across the project. Here's how we need you to like report your sprints or um, report progress for X, Y, and Z intervals across the project. Um, and here, and usually there'll be a template or a format or um, something like that where it's like, okay, then they can actually disseminate that information or see it on a live dashboard and then ask questions like, hey, we're running behind here. Are we concerned? Should we be concerned uh, and stuff? And then they can either one, go talk to that producer because of context is key type of thing. Um, or it's like um, they they already know what's going on because they've been um, having leadership conversations or conversations with those teams because good producers will have brought that up in advance. Now, it doesn't happen all the time, and I'm not saying that makes a, a good or a bad producer and stuff, but hopefully you're pushing out that information um, in a timely manner where they can just digest it at that point. Mm -hmm. And they don't, then the leadership is like, Hey, where are you at with this and stuff? Like what's going on here and stuff and whatever. And stuff. cause no one wants that and stuff that gets into like micromanagement aggression territory. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so, um, but, um, sorry, what was the original question? <laughs> oh, I sort of bounced around everywhere, but it was more, more about like, um, you are measuring kind of like if there's a velocity dip or something, oh, or you, you are behind, like, that's right. what do you do to try and get things back on track? Um, oh, I remember what we were talking about too. It was, um, do you do sprints like in a live service or whatever as well? Too? Right. Yeah. We were talking um, about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me finish that one first as sure. well too. Um, yeah. I think like when I was talking about like, Hey, some things work on teams better and stuff. So, um, like a, even in live service or even, uh, during launch well, I guess mostly during launch, I would say every team except one, <laughs> uh, does waterfall. <laughs> Maybe people oh, don't really? want to admit it. Maybe people don't want to admit it, but most people do waterfall when they're launching a game. Well, that's the thing, right? Is that <clears throat> waterfall is such an ugly word in, in, <laughs> yeah, in, it's kind of, in either yeah. the game industry or, or, or tech or whatever. But it's like, I've always been a firm believer of trying to merge waterfall and, and sprint methodologies together. Because I think if you lean one yeah. way or the other, and it's just me, like too much and you adhere to one too much, it's like it could wind up not really working for you. But sometimes yeah. the waterfall effect does take over a little bit. Yeah, I, I, but just because you do sprints doesn't also mean it's agile either true um if you're not taking time to do the rituals and the things that actually make agile agile which is hey we made a mistake these last week two weeks whatever and stuff taking the time to reflect on that oh crap how do we fix that so we don't keep right. making that same dang mistake 
right? right? If you keep making the same mistake and then the release date's just staying where it is and you put this release date out there for some reason and then <laughs> it's like, yourself well, in the foot. Right. Yeah. It's like, we're never going to make it, but this is the release date. So screw <laughs> yes. it. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's, and, and sometimes sure that's successful. Um, other times it's not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but like even in a live service, um, I would say most of the time, um, especially because of the nature of content as well too. Um, sure. It's probably a mix of both and stuff, but most of the time that is waterfall. Um, they know what they have to do to make that content. It's a step process. Um, and sure you can have some, um, retro in there or whatever for that content piece or at a given interval as well too and stuff. But inherently most teams I've been on for content have been waterfall because, Especially that's how, well, it used to be called shotgun, but it's shot grid now. Uh, right. <laughs> and that's, uh, especially larger studios, they'll use that because it's good for a content pipeline. Um, and it's easy to record um, motion in there as well, too. Um, and so uh, it's like, what do they do? They primarily do waterfall because it's, it's kind of a one dependency after the other. I have to... Um, make the concept before I can make the model, before I can actually map it and rig it and texture it and whatever. It's all kind of a step process that one has to happen after the other in that chain link process. So, whereas like, especially most other things like, especially R&D, this is a great example. Um, I think sprints are with goals, especially, uh, well, Goals in general and stuff, imperative, especially in R&D. If you don't have goals for the team, if you don't have goals for the project that you're trying to do by the end of that time interval, that sprint, that whatever you want to call it and stuff, how do you know, how can you measure yourself as a team whether you're actually moving in a successful direction or not? Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is why a lot of teams in the past... I. You can raise some articles in the past, but I won't name names. Um, but it's like, that's why maybe some projects are in R&D for six, seven, eight years. And I know there's lots of other reasons for that as well, too. Like, hey, we want to do this new tech coming out that's up and coming or whatever and stuff. But like, um, have goals for your team. And I think the biggest thing as well, too, is if leadership is drastically changing those goals, make sure that those are goals that are changing for the right reasons um right you're not, building off stop of, and evaluate yeah. yeah you're building off of what you're you're working it's not just like all right let's scrap everything and burn it Correct. to the ground sort of deal yeah, yeah. then yeah. all that work is done for nothing you're starting at right. square one and right. and i think that especially leadership on um r&d teams as well too like sometimes they don't realize that if they say hey we're moving in this direction well okay as a producer as well, too, that's also some of the things that you have to um, let them know, like, okay, if you want to move in this direction, cool. Just know that you're losing all this time, all this work, all this effort that we've done. Here are the things that we can salvage. Here are the things that we cannot. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then they'd be like, oh, crap. <laughs> right. And it's like, and then it's like, we really have to have like a, a come to Jesus moment at that point and be like, is that really the direction we want to go? Right. So, um, or need to go or feel that it's best for our players because of that reason. 
So, um, so yeah, I mean, and that, that gets into a whole kind of layer above just the execution of a project is really hard. Now, (laughs) I talked a little bit about like, okay, releasing in multiple regions, releasing in, um, multiple languages and stuff. Okay. Now it's here about kind of, I, I kind of view this as a boat. Uh, and stuff the larger the team the larger the boat and stuff so like those 1300 person teams those are like the titanic uh, and stuff it's as the larger team you get and stuff the harder it is to pivot or turn that that ship just because it's like you're trying to shift the decision of a thousand people as opposed to five um, whereas like, okay, if I'm on a very small lean and mean R and D team, uh, and stuff with five, 30 people max and stuff, we can move a lot quicker. We can make decisions faster. We, there's a lot more kind of, um, close knit, uh, even working remotely and stuff. Um, because like you are probably the lead of that department and you are also the subject matter expert doing that work as, as well too. Um, which is usually why startups are some of the most talented in the industry uh, for that, because they have to be, they have to be able to kind of step into multiple hats at once. Whereas large projects, large studios, you usually have like a small area that you focus on and everywhere else is kind of built out because they have teams that are solving those problems. So, um, yeah, but yeah. So in, in sort of a hypothetical scenario, then since you're getting kind of more into, into pipeline stuff, like if uh, levels being created, right? And just uh, let's say we're making a uh, let's say we're making a fantasy game, and we're creating an outdoor sort of foresty level, third person um, role playing game, okay? RPG, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and we kind of we know we have an idea about the mechanics and things like that. We know it's it's sort of a little bit of hack and slash. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say it's like Dynasty Warriors, okay? And okay. not that it's a Dynasty Warriors game, but it's it's similar <laughs> to that. Uh, where where are we starting in terms of figuring out? All right, we're designing this level. We mm-hmm. know we got you know these warriors that can slice through tons of enemies. What 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 are we doing with this level? How are we starting? How are we building out a schedule for this this level to get um, you know concepted, um, model environment art, et cetera, and and take it through play testing and things like that? We have to go through like the whole. Process, I was like, you, you wanna know? you want me to I go mean, through could. the whole thing? <laughs> we could. <laughs> How but much time you got? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go as deep as you want to go. But I'm always interested in like in your ideal world. If you're if you have this scenario, how are you how are you approaching it? Right. Yeah, I let's say you got a, a big of, team. This is a AAA game. Sure. Um, yeah. I think a lot of this uh, kind of comes down, uh, especially for me, if I were to be help, helping a team drive to some of those solutions, what this is and kind of how we're doing it type of thing, is um, a lot of that ties into how the tech works as well, too. Um, mm-hmm. So this used to be a very big problem kind of on last-gen consoles and stuff because um, you'd have like um, streaming chunks is what they call it, and they still call that now, but it's less noticeable now because the tech has gotten really good. Um, but before you, what you had to do essentially, even especially in open world uh, and whatever, this was really hard. Was um, if I'm going towards an area with a large vista, um, and it's 
third person is even harder because the camera view is a lot more and stuff, but I can only have so much of the world in memory. Um, right. It's actually visible, otherwise, right. Otherwise I crash, right? I, yeah. I don't have mm-hmm. enough memory on this machine. Um, and consoles, it's a finite amount of memory right whereas right. someone on pc it's like okay that's <laughs> if we can't get by with this less of ram memory and stuff okay this is our minimum spec re- requirement then right mm-hmm. um but it's and so that's kind of how they go about setting those things but um uh it's like okay i need to know the tech behind this on how this is going to work with this level because do we have vistas here are we planning on having a uh, a hero piece like a um um whatever like um a hero piece meaning like a very unique architecture piece specific for this area that's not reused anywhere else in the game right like hero like, object kind of thing yeah correct yeah yeah mm-hmm. so it's like um uh what is this gonna what do we think this is gonna be or what do we need this to be like how does it fit into the story um and then how is this going to be affected by the tech that we have to build for this area as well too um can we do streaming tech do we need something unique to this to fulfill this situation are we going to have um (laughs) like an old unreal type hallway and stuff where we can dump the level behind them and then they move forward type of thing is there going to be a cinematic in the middle of that to where we can dump it and then load the rest like how is this going to work or is this all streaming from our server um all these type of things come into effect and those are the things I usually go in and try and solve first. So, because if we don't understand that amount of work for tech, the amount of work for, um, and and I'm not saying that that's the only thing, right. But Mm -hmm. a lot of it kind of hinges on that. Like, um, and if one, we don't have that tech, if we say we have to go to a whole new engine because of this, those have larger implications rather than just us making this, area look awesome and fit in the story type of thing because if we say we can't even do that i'm not going to shoot an expensive mocap scene either and stuff that we can't even do because we can't even fit this piece in because it doesn't make sense for our player type of thing so um that's usually the areas where i start and stuff because um those have the and then i kind of go from there once i've got the engineering solved there's always something for every discipline. That's just part of the nature of work, right? Okay, what is the biggest difficulty with this? Okay, what do we solve first? What do we have to prototype first? What do we have to prove out to know? And sometimes we don't know. Like sometimes it's like, we've never done this before. No one's ever done this before. Okay, like how do we do this then? What do we think are the first steps? And so the mentality I have in those situations is um, fail fast. Um, yeah. because if you can prove something out and it works, okay, then, okay, what's the next step then? How do we incre- incrementally know that we can validate our work and move forward? Or how do we know that this is not going to work and we prove that as fast as possible so that we can fail and then pivot and move in a direction that we think is the next best scenario or that is also going to solve the problem etc cetera, etc cetera. and then from there like once you know your idea is working then it's like okay now we can start really thinking about more specific things than the level right correct yeah like where is this going to be placed how do we want the player to interact here are they going to be um is there going to be a cutscene? is there going to be interactive objects is there going to be a boss that comes out here um and then you can start to kind of like lay in that 
kind of foundation with, and usually that's a multitude of, um, uh, <laughs> usually multiple producers on a triple A and stuff, but also multiple team members as well too, because, Hey, okay. Depending on what that may be and what that flow of that level is then, um, essentially, how is it tied to the narrative? Okay. I need a narrative designer. I need, um, if it's stuff that's an established IP and stuff like, um, Warcraft or Dynasty Warriors or whatever it may be and stuff, you probably have like a historian or um, a writer as well too and stuff or, or both uh, and right. stuff where, okay, now we need these involved with this type of thing because here's what we're thinking and we need them to solve how this could be uh, and stuff. Or it's like, hey, we need to shoot a mocap scene or this is going to be a cinematic piece for the player and stuff when they interact with this. Okay, like... What is this going to be for, again, writing? Okay, what do we need for animation? What are we going to, how are we going to, okay, who needs to be involved with that? And okay, what animation tech pipeline tools do we need for this? And um, uh, what VFX are we going to need for that? Okay, they're going to be introduced with the boss at this point in the level. Okay, after the cinematic. Okay, need the creature designer in here. Need some creature artists. Um, And then like world artists, world engineers, I think, just by happenstance and stuff, they're in all those conversations with like QA and audio. And um, some of those other, like I think like UX, UI, um, audio, QA, they're, they kind of get like the brunt of it because they're not just like a specific f- focus on one area of the project, like animation. I am animating um, a creature or an object or whatever and stuff. Whereas UX, UI and audio and stuff, that's throughout the whole game. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so like um, on a lot of products as well too, that's why I see them, I think, suffer the most as well too because one, they're short-staffed um, all the time uh, and two, they have the most work because it's all, all their work is across the game as well too. Um, uh, and so if I'm given any advice right now as well too to students trying to break into the industry, be a UX UI designer. <laughs> <laughs> or artists they're always shorthanded so uh, especially in the AAA space so if you want to go in AAA and you want to break into the industry be a UX designer <laughs> yeah or even if you don't more good. even if you don't want to <laughs> do that learn about it learn learn yeah. enough about it to to either know enough about it to talk to someone who works on it or where you can do a little bit of it yourself yeah that's a good point i would say it's not even just that though too like especially those who especially if you want to go into leadership um or you want to be a manager in that area too and i will say not good leaders make good managers either so keep that in mind as well too but um you're gonna have to know how these how to interact with different departments as well too just as much as a producer um Mm -hmm. like if you want to keep going up that ranks as a senior or whatever there's going to be expectations of you (laughs) yeah now if you start your own studio or whatever fine have at it (laughs) do what you want Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but yeah, like I would encourage learn as many other departments as you can as well, too. Um, I think I've seen this better on some teams than other teams, but, um, man, I will say a lot of teams work better together when they know what they have to deliver, how they have to deliver it because of this other team that's dependent on your stuff or vice versa uh, and stuff. And it's like, I mean, I do that as a producer and stuff, but if y'all can do that yourselves and self-organize as well too 
That okay, makes your life a hell of a lot easier. One less thing I have to focus on. Okay, I got <laughs> other fires I got to fight as well, too, yeah. where I can focus my attention as well, too. So, right. And same with everyone else on the team as well, too. So, uh, How much can you talk about Anthem? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You're gonna throw or do you want to talk about me, Anthem? Huh? Um, let me see. Uh, anything that's not public-facing, I can... T- or that is public facing, I can talk about. Right. Um, uh, I'll let you know if I can't. So I guess, okay. what do you want to know? <laughs> well, yeah, I just, I find it a fascinating story about that game. Because um, I, I liked uh, a lot of Bioware did, particularly, you know, the original Mass Effect trilogy and things like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I like the, the, the co-op multiplayer at Mass Effect 3. So when you start hearing about this, you know, online game where it's co-op based and Bioware's making it, you know, there's all these expectations that come up with it. And that game was in development for a while, right? I mean, that started like yeah. a little after I think Mass Effect 3 started in terms of just like the concept phase and trying to figure out what it was. Kept hearing yeah, it was like rumblings about it. Yeah, it was like 2012. No, no, no. Um, so we released in 2019, 2019 in February, yeah, so. March. Uh, I think it was like March. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, that was in development for seven years um, and, and essentially pre-production. Um, when I got there, essentially, um, I came on 15 months before we shipped and there was not one working level. Oh, my God. Um, so yeah, I cause... will say that they were essentially in pre-production for a good five and a half, six years. So, um, um, and I don't know the context. I'm sure there was reasons, decisions, and there was definitely a lot of things I learned once I got there. Like, oh, okay, that's that's why you you got to where you're at right now and stuff. Which is like, okay, well, I can't change those things um, uh, and stuff. And so here here's where we're at uh, and stuff. But I'll tell you right now that. Um, uh, the people working on this project, some of the most dedicated, passionate people that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. And he, especially, well, I wouldn't say especially, but it, even when I came in for an interview to work at Bioware and stuff, I was like, oh, EA, everyone's just going to be like dead face, whatever, mm-hmm. like just working for a paycheck type of thing. Yeah, that wasn't true. Uh, and they really just want to make a really great game. And a lot of the people at the studio, like, they knew we weren't ready. Like you'll see that in the article um, right. as well too from Schreier and whatever. If you go back and look at that as well too, like st- we knew as people working on the project that we weren't ready to ship. So, um, and some and that was a mandate that- by EA, I think, right? The the March twenty nineteen yeah. delivery yeah. date. Yeah, it was, and it's unfortunate. Like I mean, they kind of ate their own <laughs> ate their own taste in medicine uh, and stuff, and. I want to say they've learned. I don't know and stuff since I haven't been there uh, and stuff. I want to say they've learned because um, of Apex and um, some other good things that they've put out since then and whatever. Um, but I don't know. Like, I I really want wanted that to succeed. And it's like, okay, well, it's been in pre-production for six years. You're going to ask for another six years? Like, <laughs> right. I don't so know who's the, the right mind. What was the issue there, that? though, even if you weren't there for that initial pre-production phase? Like, I can't say. Why didn't they get... They can't, I okay. can't say. Okay, some of it is I don't know it, yeah. and some of it is right. I don't know the entire picture. And so sure. I I don't know. I've, I heard a lot while I was at the studio and stuff, but mm-hmm. 
yeah i mean there's a lot of things that i know as well too like just like titan just like overwatch um a lot of those are not just because of one decision not just because of one happenstance it's Mm -hmm. usually a series of decisions a series of um and they probably made sense at the time right um but okay now it doesn't make sense and now we're seven years into it crap (laughs) it's it's um if you've never released a game before it's kind of all about the mindset of yeah we're we're an r&d we're um we're experimenting with new things or new tech or we want to make this awesome because we've seen this problem in previous games in the past and we want to fix this uh and stuff like that and it's like, dang, okay, now we're five years into pre-production and stuff. Mm-hmm. Crap, now you got to switch the mentality from how do you get out of R&D? How do you get into pre-production? And how, you, how do you move into production at that point? And you know what a lot of that is? A lot of that is scope cutting. Um, like, we come in, like, um, <laughs> I think, like, some players don't realize this as well, too, um, and whatever, but... Um, we, there's a lot of ambitions on projects and there's a lot of things that, um, uh, we as developers want to do as well too. And we just have to cut like either it's too much tech or it's too much manpower or we have to make this other thing that is great, um, first before we can even consider this. And we don't want to release two things that are not good. Um, and so it's like, where are we going to put our effort and energy into? Okay. That make that one thing great then at that mm-hmm. point so so um, is that but, what you sort of had to do when you got there is sort of like all right let's pick and choose what we can really make I as good as every, we can in this time frame every project i have been on um even the best ones and stuff has always we've always done scope cutting um yeah. uh, and some of those i didn't even know before uh i came on the project as well too um uh and some of them i did like um Man, what's one that I can say where I won't get in trouble here? (laughs) (laughs) Probably none, actually. Um, So, but like, there are some are bigger than others as well, too. Like, some is cutting entire planets. Like, oh, here's one that I think was um, there were supposed to be like multiple planets, multiple um, sectors on Halo Infinite when we launched. Mm -hmm. And we cut that down to one um, Mm. just because. Too much work. We could not. Yeah. It was already a large project. There, we would add to extend that another probably five to six years to even get multiple um, regions, multiple planets, uh, if we were to do that. So um, that were at the quality that we were looking for on Halo Infinite. So mm-hmm. um, that was known information. Like I think that was like an interview with Joseph Staten or whatever, who's their head of creative. But um but yeah like that just happens all the time it's cutting planets it's cutting levels it's cutting story it's uh maybe cutting a boss um i know we did that on anthem multiple times or we even the last boss uh, we had to simplify as well too on anthem because um of the timeline that we had uh, and stuff it was going to be this big elaborate thing that was dynamic and unique to the player to where they couldn't just like learn the mechanics and move on and stuff. It was going to be either multiples of that or some of it. Some people may have even said, I don't think we were thinking about AI at that point, like machine mm-hmm. learning type of thing, like learning the player's moves uh, and stuff. I don't think it was that elaborate, but I know we did make some scope cuts to that final creature. Um, and then we even cut a lot of creatures as well, too, from Anthem as well, too. Like it was just 
it's just kind of the nature of i think every game um no no game is immune to that uh, i think yeah. uh, everyone wants to make this big great big thing and stuff and sometimes it's not about big it's about making this kind of focused thing that's great and that's why you see some of these indie games do really well as well too um where it's like they focused on something they did really great and it may not have had all these other things that big triple a had and stuff but they executed it really well uh, and it was a really good concept and it's fun and people enjoy it uh, and stuff. And, um, and so that's why you have the, the good indies and stuff. And even some of um, the ones that may are not as successful and stuff, but um, the, and then the good and the bad triple uh, a as well too. And I think the big thing from both of them is that you learn from them and it's like, okay, what didn't work there? It's like, and sometimes it's luck as well, too. It's like, hey, the pandemic happened. Everyone's at home playing games because we're in lockdown. Right. Wow, we didn't expect this explosion <laughs> of growth <laughs> type yeah. of thing. And some of that you can't control either, and it just happens as well, too. So what, what do you think that's the biggest lesson you learned from, from Anthem? Because that had to be like your hair was on fire immediately. So I, I think there's probably two large aspects for myself. Um, uh, I think up until that point... Um, uh, there's this thing in the industry called like burnout or <laughs> working a lot because games yeah. are hard and takes a lot of work. Um, uh, I was so like up until that point when I was low rung in QA, just starting out my career on Tomb Raider and working my way through the ranks and whatever, like I think for like the good first six or seven years of my career, I was working overtime all the time. Some of that was my fault because I didn't know how to say no because I I wanted to like please the team, please my manager, please everyone else except for me to know that I was doing a good job. And I didn't realize that working, even if I was working smart and stuff, like my, my personality is also like, um, I'm not going to stop doing this thing until I, it's at my, because I have high standards and high level that I know I need to hit for myself and stuff. And I've learned, especially being a manager that not everyone's going to be at my <laughs> level of quality and that's okay. And stuff like I need to trust people on my team to be able to do things, um, that's at a good level. And as long as they're satisfactory and the team is satisfactory of that, like, um, maybe it doesn't meet mine. But that's okay and stuff because everyone's learning. Everyone's trying to move forward, right? And i that's kind of a blessing and a curse for me as well, too. And so by the time I got to Anthem, like, I was still working 90, 100 hours a week for about 15 months straight. Wow. Um, and at that point for me, I uh, after that project launched and we were going into live service, um, that's kind of also when I left the studio too, but I really sat down on my time in the industry um, and reflected on, well, one, I can't sustain this going forward. I need to slow down. Um, uh, I need to be able to um, either say no to things and explain why so that I can maintain a f as close to a 40 hour work week as possible. Um, or, um, say, yes, I can do this, but then what else do I drop and kind of set more of my boundaries. Um, whereas I didn't really learn to do that, um, up until that point, 
I had just been kind of <laughs> burning the candle at both ends uh, and stuff and just trying to do a good job. And I mean, some of it was successful because I worked my way kind of up through QA and stuff and over to production. And now I've worked my way up through production uh, and stuff. But um, it's not to say don't, please don't follow my example. <laughs> right. I will say that's not a healthy way to do it uh, and stuff. Um, um, especially with the negativity that that gets for right reasons in the industry about people being burnt out or overworked or whatever and stuff, because that's not healthy. That's not sustainable and people should not have to do that. So, um, so now for me and stuff, I understand that, well, one for my teams, I will protect them against that at all costs. Um, even if it costs me my job, we're not doing sympathy crunch. We're not doing crunch at all if we can avoid it as well too. So now sometimes it's like, okay, a couple, like maybe a day, couple days, a week max and stuff. If we're doing it, if it's planned, okay. Uh, and stuff and like but people need to live their lives they yeah need to like that shouldn't not be the expectation be... <laughs> yeah. that you're gonna do like that, that all the time yeah that well and not just that like um if they're like hey i <laughs> i need to put my daughter to sleep or my daughter is sick or uh like life happens and i've missed out on too many like too many of like I don't know, friends getting married or having babies or whatever right. and stuff because I was working overtime. And some of that was because I couldn't afford it. But other times it was like, even if I couldn't fly there or be with my family to do those things, there's this thing called technology where we can call in and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't even have the time for that because I was working overtime, right? And I, yeah, some, and, and it's like, that should not be the norm. Like, yeah. That's not why we're here on this planet is to work overtime um, for companies, even though we love what we do and stuff. Um, I'll tell you that it gets taken advantage of. So, um, and those are just kind of learnings that I've had to one set boundaries for myself and go to bat for, for other people as well to being in an industry for this long. So well, that's great that you're able to, I mean, <clears throat> it sucks that that happened, but it's great that you learned from that where are now able to carry that forward. Right. And protect your team. Yeah against yeah. that i mean for sure it's uh i guess it was a sacrifice worth making so you can make other people's lives better and your own life better right correct yeah and i think a lot of that of what i kind of filter back to is um uh, i see this all too often as well too um uh, people who are already burnt out for whatever reason or they're jaded by the industry or bad managers or whatever as well too and stuff is like they just kind of give up like they don't, they don't want to learn anymore. They don't care, um, and stuff. And that's heartbreaking. Like I can't, I can't help that then. Or, um, or, or they just turn out of the industry and, um, that's not good for anyone because yeah. then they start talking bad about the industry and then other people get jaded and some people listen, and especially if they have a big influence and stuff, then, that hurts us, but we did it to ourselves and whatever and stuff. And so, and I say like large industry and stuff like game industry is very small relatively to like larger tech industry and a lot of other industries out there as well though too. Um, but like it's growing every day. Like you may see some studios shut down, um, but I'll see 
my network on LinkedIn or um, uh, an Excel sheet on Twitter and stuff with some people like, hey, here's people who are hiring right now, or I can get you in contact with this person and stuff. Like, let's get you landing on your feet. So for every studio closure, which is sad to see and stuff, there's always like four or five other startups happening um, right. and stuff. So it's good thing about our industry. Don't know. That'll probably maybe slow down if there's a recession coming and stuff. But um, uh, it's always good to see like that kind of close knit community like come together and uh, want to have people land on their feet and succeed and stuff. Whereas I don't see that in a lot of other industries at all. So it's kind of every everyone out for their their own selves. So <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Ian, thanks so much for uh, for being on our show today. And this was informative, entertaining, <laughs> all the above, man. This is this is great stuff. Always love chatting with a with a fellow producer too. So uh, best of luck awesome. with uh, the, the stuff you're working on now. And thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. We want to thank Ian again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Mm